Today is November 1st, 2020. We are facing the most important presidential election of our life, as many pundits and people claim. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, two senior citizens, are campaigning right now with all of their hearts and souls and strength. They repeatedly shout their campaign promises and messages. Trump says, let's make America great again and again. And Joe Biden says, I will unite the country. In lieu of this political season, I want to ask a question to ourselves. If we are campaigning for Christ, what would, what would, what would we say? What is the message and promise of Christians to the world? That's what I want to, want to reflect with you in today's passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 17. Here we see Paul declaring that we are not just another religious movement, but a new creation of God in Christ. And we have an important, indispensable purpose for the world as a God's new creation. So with that, let us read our text. Verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is a plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take a pride in us so that you can answer those who take a pride in what is in rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in right, our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one die for all, and therefore all die. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of a reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of a reconciliation. We are, therefore, God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul states in verse 17 that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. As a new creation of God, Christians have a new purpose of a life, which is a reconciliation. Reconcile people to God, that is a Christian purpose of a life, as well as a promise to the world. To understand this, this meaningful, very meaningful message of a Christian faith and our life, in this very meaty passage, I want us to think of three M's. So today, I'll, let me give you an outline quickly, and then we'll go by one by one. First one is our motivation. 
And number two, our magnification. And number three is our mission. So motivation, magnification, and mission. First of all, what is our motivation to reconcile the world? Verse 14, Paul said, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Love of Christ compels us. Now, before I explain the meaning of a compelling love of Christ or compelling love, let me ask you a question. If you, if I, if you describe a Christ's love in one adjective or verb, what would, what would you say? If I give you a blank statement, the Christ's love is blank, what would you put in that blank? Most of us would put Christ's love is a comforting, consoling, caring, sacrificial, saving, or sweet. Paul confessed today Christ's love was a compelling him to do things that some say that he was out of his mind. Verse 13, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. Have you done something out of your mind for God lately? I pray and hope that today's message empowers to do something out of mind, a little things praise for God. Christ's love compels me. You know, Greek word for compelling, compels, is a suneko. Suneko is the uh, compound word, once again. Sun is a sin, is a like, is a, from which we have a synergized and synchronized means together. And echo, you know, is a have or hold. And we have an English word echo from the verb. So echo is a sound that holds together and does not disappear easily. So that's what suneko means. So other translation, other English Bible translate like uh, Christ's love controls me or Christ's love constrains me. That's an old King James translation. And the uh, uh, Revised Standard said that Christ's love urges us on. And the NIB, that our, by our translation said, uh, compels us. Christ compels us. A commentator explained the word compels means to hem in, to hold on both sides, give no way out, to back into the corner, and to take away options. To take away options. So we are hemmed in by love of Christ. You know, here is something very important that we need to recognize. Sometimes we think love of Christ leaves us many options. We think Christ's love is absolutely unconditional and that nothing I can do changes a heart for me. So God will never deny me since Christ loved me absolutely and conditionally. So we think with Christ's love, we can do anything that we want. Theoretically, yes. Christ's love is a most condoning. But personally and realistically, when you know Christ's love for you, it is the most compelling. That's a paradox of a love. You know, love, love of somebody, if you, if you met somebody whose love is, uh, is so special, you, you are affected by love. Have you sit around uh, uh, with uh, somebody in the table in, in the, some meal time 
And, uh, you know, who cares about his... Well, actually, I, we have a few people like that in our church. And I try. You know, one time I sat in the, you know, uh, do you guys miss a, a Sunday lunch, lunch fellowship? I do. I don't know what I miss more, worship or lunch fellowship. I think I miss a, a lunch fellowship. And one time I was sitting with this particular brother and I was, you know, about to eat. And then all of a sudden he said to his wife that, uh, Honey, do you, do, you need, uh, do you need something? Let me fix it for you. And he stood up and then went and got some you know, drinks and then uh, napkins. And uh, that makes me feel sort of uh, uh, funny and uh, uncomfortable. So I said, okay, I have to also say something to my wife. So I said to my wife, Honey, do you need something? Do you let me fix your plate? And then my wife looked at me and said, Who are you? Why are you doing this strange thing to me? You know, seeing love makes you, seeing special love makes you sort of a love in the same manner. That's what Paul is trying to say here. So, here one thing that I want us to know this clearly. Christ's love, compelling love of Christ, takes away our options. Paul actually say Christ's love doesn't leave us many options. Christ's love is so compelling, it actually led Paul to the cross. Voluntary suffering for good of others. And Paul said, verse 15, He died for all, and all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for who him who died for them and was raised again. This is a paradox of Christ's compelling love for us. It does not expand our options, but actually eliminate our options. In the process, it narrows our options for ultimate, the most powerful and precious option, the option of love. In the process, Christ's compelling love liberates us from our own selfish love, or self-idolatry, or you know, self-indulgent love. So that's what Paul is saying here. Christ's love compels me. You know, again, today's passage, Paul starts with it. We know that, uh, what it is to fear God. You know, love and fear go together. Fear God, by that Paul didn't mean that God is afraid of God's punishment. You know why judgment of God is a most fearful thing? Because it's a judgment of the, the most loving God. You know, judgment of uh, your own family, people who love you and trust you and care for you, that is the most scary judgment. You don't want to disappoint them. You want to make them proud. That's what Paul meant. So love and fear, it is a strange paradoxical you know, mixture but love and fear will be never be separated. You know, you heard me many times. I fear God and I fear my wife. Not because of Jamie, you know, Jamie, you know, scares me. Oh yeah, she, she does sometimes. But because I love her and I know how much she loves me. 
That's why I fear her. So love and fear go together. Now, when people, I hope that we, are, we also feel the same compelling love of Christ, like Paul. And I hope that just like Paul heard from other people saying to him, I hope each one of us hear the same thing, that what on earth have made you to do that? And when somebody asks us that question, all of us answer the same way. The love from heaven made me do that on earth. It's a compelling love of Christ made me do that bold, crazy love thing for God and each other. Once again, I want to say, people think you have to have many options to enjoy life. That's not how you enjoy life. You need to have the best option. That's how we enjoy life. And Christ's compelling love leads us to the best option of a life, which is to love others as Christ loved us. Amen? Let me move on to the second M, magnification. Christ's love not only compels us to do things out of mind for others and God, it also, Paul said, creates us anew as a God's new creation. That's the second point. That is a magnification. Verse 16, From now on, we regard no one from worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, old as God, new is here. This 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 is so packed, so loaded, that uh, we... I want to look at the three key phrases here. That is a worldly point of view in Christ and new creation in reversal way. So we're going to look at the uh, new creation first and in Christ and the worldly point of view. New creation is a Paul's declaration. In Christ is a Paul's qualification. And the worldly point of view is a manifestation of a new creation. So let's look at it. So Paul said in Christ... We are made a new creation. This is a most radical and noble declaration about human being that you can find ever in the entire human literature. We are new creation in Christ. Anyone comes to Christ, he becomes a new creation of God. Now, Greek has a, a two words for new. The first word is a neos. And second word is a kaios and a kainos. And I want us to learn this distinction. Neos, neos means new in a sense of a more recent in time. It could so when Jesus said new wine has to be in the new wineskin, that word new wine and new wineskin is a neos. Neos. So it means a, a recent or fresh. And oftentimes the word neo, neophyte, means a young or young people. You know, prodigal son was the younger of two sons. And the Greek word for the younger son is a neos. It's a newer son. That's the you know, Greek word. Now, that's not the word that Christ, you know, Paul used here. Paul used here kainos. Kainos. Kainos means new in the sense of New in quality, different in nature, 
from the all. Kainos describes something uh, uh, not noble, noble, something unknown, something remarkable, something that you have not seen before. I forgot to bring my uh, uh, preaching prop, but uh, you know, I have an iPhone uh, 10, uh, 11, iPhone 11. This is a nails. It wasn't nails until just a month ago, a few days ago, and the iPhone 12 came out. Now, I have, I have a, a, I used to have an earphone like this. And then recently, church upgraded me uh, my computer, and then it came with the, what is that, earpod? What is that, earpod, you called it? Airpod, I'm sorry. Airpod, Airpod, who, who, who invented all this word? You know? And I tell you, that is a canos. I made a fun of people who wear the, you know, Airpod. And once I use it, oh my goodness. It's so good. Ha! You know, Apple is a, a new evil empire. They create the need that we don't have and we didn't know that we have. And then kind of uh, addict to it. They are drug dealers. They are, they are legal drug dealers. They constantly invent the things to spoil us and to make us crave more. Anyway, that's a canos. So word canos is not only new, but superior to the old. It's a transformatively new. So in the uh, Greek New Testament, I mean, in, in, the, in the Bible, you know, new is uh, something significant. So, for instance, when people were amazed at Jesus' new teaching, then new is not nails, but canos. And then when Paul went to Athens and preached a new uh, a message or new philosophy, resurrection of the dead, that new philosophy was a canos. And this word of new, especially, is comes out so many times in the book of Revelation, such as God promises a new name, Revelation 2.17. That's a kainos. New song, Revelation 5.9 and 14.3. That's a kainos. New Jerusalem will be our eternal home, Revelation 21. That's kainos. We will have us, we'll spend eternity in the new heaven and earth, Revelation 21 again. That is a kainos. And the ultimate God's promise, I will make a all things new. That word new is a canos. So here new means unique, unparalleled, unsurpassable, and ultimate life. So bottom line is this. Neos means chronologically new. Kainos means chemically, essentially new. To Paul and early Christians, Christianity is not a new religion or recent religion or recent Jewish sect, but it is a new, perfect, complete revelation of God through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul meant by new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All that has gone, new has come. That is a Paul's declaration. Now, what about the qualification? Paul said he qualifies this incredible new reality of humanity with his favorite 
phrase in Christ. This expression, the in Christ, or in Greek is en Christo, is the signature of a Paul's theology. Many of you sign your uh, Christian email with the in Christ, right? That's that, you, 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 you are kind of uh, uh, not stealing. You are, you are kind of uh, uh, you know, using a Paul's expression. Out of 273 times that in Christ is used, Paul used more than 239 times. And in Christ, it means most compassionate, comprehensive, critical, theological expression of the Bible. In Christ, God accepts anybody. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. God invites everyone and all humanity to himself in Christ. This is a most compassionate and comprehensive, even unconditional and unconditional. At the same time, it is the most critical invitation. No one can find the true God outside of Christ. Any theology that speaks of God not in Christ must be condemned and must be, you know, and must be condemned and they act like Paul cursed it in Galatians chapter 1. We curse any theology not done in Christ, but outside of Christ, in human philosophy and whatever human you know, ideology, all those theology is not Christian theology. So with Paul and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and Karl Barth, yes, I also curse and condemn any theology done outside of Christ. They are enemies of God. Seriously, only in Christ, God revealed his heart and reconciled us to himself. Now, third point is a manifestation. Paul said verse 15, uh, verse uh, 16, that, that from now on, that we will regard no one from worldly point of view. This world point of view in Greek text means according to flesh. Katasarx, that means according to flesh. And Paul here is actually saying that had he not been a follower of Christ and proclaimer of his gospel, Paul would have regarded Gentiles, especially sinful Gentiles like Corinthians, very differently. Frankly speaking, he would not have written you know, letters to Corinthians. He would never met them. He would avoid them. But Christ changed everything. So when Paul said, from now on, I don't, we don't regard anybody according to flesh or according to worldly point of view. You know what Paul is saying? He was a confessing conversion of his anthropology. Conversion of anthropology. Yes, Christology, biblical Christology is the only safe way to teach us and guide us to have real caring anthropology. There is no correct Christology without a caring anthropology. Correct Christology and caring anthropology go together. You know, without the Christology, correct understanding of God in Christ, we cannot look at the other people right way and relate them right way. 
This, starting this week, our daily breath, we've been studying uh, second, uh, First Peter. Uh, we finally moved out of Paul's writing, and we've been meditating on Peter. And, uh, you know, when I read the First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter said this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Pithunia. Now, Peter called the Gentile brothers and sisters God's elect and exiles. It moved me so much. You know why? The word elects and exiles are two primary Old Testament words to describe Jewish people, children of Abraham, and as you know, Peter is a proud Jew. I said in daily breath, but when you know God told Peter to eat this whatever non-kosher food in Acts chapter 10, Peter is the only human being who said to God, no three times. <laughs> I'll not, you know, break the God's command. You know, I'm a I'm a Jew. I'm gonna abide by kosher law. You know. Three times, and the third time he said, oh, this must be important because number three always gave Peter, you know, hiccup. So Peter said, oh, there must be some. And then, you know, it, it happened at three o'clock in the afternoon, and then all of a sudden there were three messengers from Cornelius. But Peter is just, you know, so Jewish, ethnocentric guy. But at the end, he loved Gentile brothers and sisters as God's people fellow elects and exiles. All God's children and leaders, such as Paul and Peter, they all have a conversion of anthropology through Christology. All right? Write down somewhere, because this is a great statement. Theology doesn't change your anthropology. It's not a Christian theology, brothers and sisters. God who commands us to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul also told us, love our neighbor as ourselves. This is a biblical theology. And biblical theology, once again, cannot be separate from the ethic. And ethic means anthropology. Do you remember the final message of C.S. Lewis you know, greatest sermon, the, the weight of glory. Do you, do you remember that, you know, a couple of weeks ago? I hope you remember because, of, you know, at the end, C.S. Lewis said, even the dullest, the most uninteresting neighbors that you meet are actually potentially gods and goddesses. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbors is the holiest object present to, to your senses. It is an immortal whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. That's what, you know, that is a great preaching and biblical preaching because the fear of God always leads us respect and love of others. Let me repeat that again. Fear of God always leads to respect and love of others. Our spiritual position in Christ brings new social perspective of other human beings. Now with that, let me bring up to our third point. That is a mission. 
So we are not only new creation or recreated in Christ, according to verse you know, 18 to remaining 21, we are, we received a new mission from God, which is a ministry of a reconciliation. And verse 20, Paul said, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors. Now, what is the job of an ambassador? You know, ambassador, they live, I mean, he lives in the foreign country, but he does not follow the custom and culture of a foreign land. He does not live like a local. He represents his original country. His allegiance is not to the government or king of the uh, ruler of this assigned location, but to the king who commissioned him. Thomas Jefferson was a uh, uh, America's ambassador to France. When uh, when even United States is barely barely existed, and we don't have even Declaration of Independence, and then one day. He read, a, uh, he read a book, and it was a very, very concerning to Thomas Aquinas because there was a very well-known French naturalist and Enlightenment thinker, guy named, let me pronounce him carefully, his, uh, his name is uh, Count George Louis Leclerc Buffon. And uh, this uh, naturalist, he wrote a very uh, a huge volume of the book Histoire naturelle. Oops. Sorry, if I, I okay, I'm not offending any French here. Okay, Histoire naturelle. In that book, he made a very interesting claim. That is, size of animals in a land correspond the culture or civilization of the land. The better the civilization, the bigger the size of animals. That's what he claimed, and then he said. That's why America, the animals are small. <laughs> and uh, Thomas Jefferson, was, he, he was a concern because he was a basically this uh, buffon. He was uh, portraying America as a very uncivilized and primitive culture where a lot of sickness and, and affect the humans and animals. So, you know, he's out there to uh, encourage people to immigrate to you know, America. So guess what Thomas Aquinas did? I mean, Thomas Jefferson did. He wrote a letter to governor of New Hampshire, his friend, and said, find the largest moose you can find, and then hunt it and send him over here. So he's a friend. He couldn't find the one in the New Hampshire, so he went to Vermont, crossed the you know, state line. That's another story, but... He killed a humongous moose. You know how big moose is? Go Google and see how big they are. And then put them in the ship and it took three months to arrive in, in the France. Can you imagine the stench, stench? And then Thomas Jefferson delivered them the carcass of the moose, that moose to Buffon's house. That's what ambassadors does. They correct misunderstanding or fake news about your native country or king they represent. That's what we Christians do. Anybody has a misunderstanding of God? Yes, we don't stand by. We speak up. We speak up. Now, today, 
if you look at the Paul's, you know, uh, Paul's uh, analogy of uh, we being an ambassador, us being an ambassador, he compares the Christians to a particular Christian mission, to a particular critical mission of an ambassador. That is, peacemaking mission. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It means make a peace with God. God made him who had no sin to be a sin, so that in him we might become a righteousness of God. Here, Paul is saying, Christ not only reconciled us to God, but called us to help others to reconcile to God. Now, this ministry of reconciliation is more than evangelism and mission. Paul is not just talking about save other people with the message of Christ. Right now, in our country, we have an urgent evangelical mission to help people to reconcile to each other. The call of a racial reconciliation is a more critical than ever in our life, in our history. Racial reconciliation is overdue in our country. It's a very important part of Christian gospel. Just as we saw Paul and Peter, these are proud Jews. They embraced the Gentiles with the love of Christ. We must have Christians to embrace a different people of a different color skin to embrace and respect same way. That's what our country is suffering. We are a country with the largest number of evangelical Christians and evangelical churches, yet we have a racial tension worse than any other country. This is gospel call that we have to reckon. If you trace the history of slavery in the West, you will be shocked to find out that Christian state and the church was, in the, was the main agent and the actor of this tragedy. There is a book called uh, Christian Imagination written by William Jennings. This trace where we fail to recognize racism as a theological Christian problem. In that book, first time I read this book, I was blown away by the historical witness. You know, 1444, Lisbon, Portugal, there was special church worship. And this is, this is the beginning of institutional slavery in the West and Christian nation. That worship service was unique, shocking. Because Infante Enrique, the king of Portugal, sent out Portuguese expeditionary, you know, uh, 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 navy to Africa and hunt down African Americans, Africans, black people, captured the 46 of them and brought to Lisbon to make them a slave. And when the captain came 
king and archbishop, cardinal, they all came. And out of 46, the, the Africans they captured, they gave two of them to church as a tithing. They gave a human being as offering. And then they gave some to the king, and the rest of them is divided by the people who invested in the expedition. So it's like, uh, you know, stockholders claiming their, you know, dividends. And uh, the whole thing was uh, written in detail by King's historian, Zarara. He's a well-recognized theologian and historian. And then, you know, in his uh, uh, record, there's uh, incredibly shocking things we found. When they were dividing these people by, among different, you know, part, you know, interests, you know, parties of interest, some of these people, family members, who were captured together. So when they were separated, they were screaming. And guess what Zarara said? Their scream reminded him of a cry of, a cry of a Christ on the cross. That shows these Christians, they knew what they were doing. They, are, they, 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 know, they know about the Bible. Yet they are committing this inhumane, cruel act to another human being. You know, slavery always existed, but never racially justified. That's the beginning of a racial, you know, slave based on racism. In America, we inherited this is a worse form of slavery, race-based slavery. And the America South, ironically, the Bible Belt, this is where slavery is the most you know, stiffened. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's entrenched in his psyche. This is why Flannery O'Connor said, she, she, the great you know, Roman Catholic writer and novelist, she said the America South is a Christ hunted land. She compares a Christ to a hunting ghost. Who, what is a hunting ghost? Ghost, vengeful ghost. Sad, vengeful ghost. She said Christ is not glorified with the slavery. Christ is sad and vengeful because of a Christian's compromise uh, and misunderstanding of the gospel. And sadly, this one continues. And I want to say this. This is not a black and white issue. Okay, most of us, is, you know, we think, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, my ancestors were not slaveholders or no or something. Let me get this. For that, let me, uh, uh, let me, I read a sermon of a Japanese, Amer a Japanese Canadian pastor on this passage. And he's serving a church in the Vancouver. Oh, he said, uh, 1778, the British Royal Navy Captain James Cook, first time he came to Vancouver Island, he traded with the Indians. And he made uh, some good, you know, um, he made uh, a lot of goods. And then that let, uh, 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 let uh, more, you know, uh, British people coming to that part of the land and eventually become a British, you know, Columbia. And but when he wrote to the king or a queen, Victoria, this is what he said to the queen. There is no people in this area. 
Even though he traded, he made a lot. He he traded with a, a native Indians or you know people of a First Nation. That's what Canadian called the American Indians. He said there is no people in this area. You know what he meant by that? There is a no Europeans in this area, so we can claim this as our colony. He didn't see this Native American as an equal. I mean, as an equal, another human being. This is just subject to rule and conquer and exploit. Now, this Japanese Canadian pastor, he, he gave us a personal testimony. When his younger sister dated a Canadian black, African Canadian, his father, who is a very reserved first generation Japanese immigrant, one day followed them, their car. And they waited in the apartment, in front of the apartment for a while. And a little bit later, he knocked on the door. And he said, why don't you guys meet in our living room instead of talking to each other here? And the, <laughs> that daughter almost died there. I have a friend, college friend. They immigrated, the family immigrated to Los Angeles in the uh, early 70s. And his oldest sister, almost killed for dating an African-American. This African-American young man she dated, he was not, you know, he was actually cream of crop. He was a son of a Tom Bradley the mayor, the longtime mayor of Los Angeles. So he's a well-educated guy. They met each other in college. And they, my friend's parents, they're devout Baptist deacon and deaconesses. This a Korean first-generation immigrant almost killed his daughter because she was dating black. This is a deeply, deeply Human problem. I don't want to go on. Let me bring up quick, quick end. But uh, I want to say this. Miroslav Bov, a, a Croatian-American theologian who now teaches at Yale. He was actually born and raised in the former, you know, Yugoslavia or now, you know, Croatia. That he said the ethnic cleansing, he actually saw, witnessed the ethnic cleansing. He said ethnic cleansing is a result of a false sense of a purity of our own race or bloodline. Absolutely right. That's what Aaron, Nazis use the Aryan you know, ideology. Or Japanese use that they are the descendant of sun goddesses. This is why the many, many Koreans and Chinese cannot stand this rising sun flag. That's a swastika to, 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 in, in Asia. You know, because, because Japanese said they're the descendant of a goddess of a, you know, sun. And that's how they try to, you know, kill, rape, and the, whatever, the other people. Now, in America, we have a systemic racism. And uh, anybody seen a movie called The Thirteenth? From Netflix, on Netflix. Okay, I have a I have an assignment for you. Okay. 
everyone, anybody who hasn't seen the movie, I implore you, as a pastor and Christian and the citizen of this great country, watch this movie. Because if I watch it in the summer, and I, when I get the facts, I was shocked. Let me give you some facts. U.S. have 5% of a world population, but also 25% of a world prisoners. We are, we are only 5% of world population, but one quarter of prisoners in the world live in the United States, in the U.S. prison. U.S. prison population in 1970 was just about 327,000. Now, it's close to 2.5 million, seven times fold. Black men counted only 6.5% of population, but in prison population, they are more than 40%. Out of 100 Americans, six or seven are black men. But when you go to prison, four, four out of 10 are black men. So this 13th Amendment, it traced the, the brief history, I'm mean, actually history, historical root of how systemic racism took place in America. Here, both Republican, Democrat, they all played, they, they, their hands are dirty. So I really encourage you to look at it. Let me close with some quote. Angela Davis, she said, in racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. I totally concur. Christ will not be non-racist. Christ will be completely anti-racist. Miroslav Bob said, when Christ came, he began ministry. He not only remade things, but he renamed things. Whatever people call unclean, he actually called it clean. Whatever people say sinners, actually Christ said they are sick. You know, and the Christ renamed things. Yes, we need to rename things. And also, Martin Luther King, he said this, darkness cannot be uh, driven, drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This is why Martin Luther King, he embarked on the nonviolent protests or civil disobedience as a way to go. So again, we are not, you know, you know let's not respond to this uh, systemic racism emotionally. And Mahama Gandhi, another nonviolent, you know, uh, a protester, he said this, iPhone eye makes the world blind. Our ability to reach unity in diversity will be beauty and test of our civilization. The maturity of our culture, maturity of a Christian culture is to bring unity in diversity, to recognize each other. And Cornel West, well-known Princeton, you know, a professor, African-American professor said this, justice is what love looks like in public. I have to tell you, without justice, there's no peace. We all want peace, 
Peace is never, never earned by force. Peace comes through justice. Justice takes every one of us. And President Obama, I like his, you know, his quote, his comment on the Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter simply refers to the notion there is a specific vulnerability for African Americans that needs to be addressed. It is not meant to suggest that other lives don't matter. It is just to suggest that other folks aren't experiencing this particular vulnerability. The president of a Southern Baptist uh, a mission called the North American Mission Board. He is African-American, and he wrote his book, Advocate, that even though he is a pastor, and he's actually married to a, a, Caucasian, a, a Caucasian, but anytime police stopped him, he has to come out and do this. And anytime police pulled him out for no reason, his wife had to hold, hold his hand and say, honey, sweetie, everything will be okay. That's the what you know, African-Americans go through. So black lives matter. We're not talking about blacks are more special than others. Actually, it's the opposite. As a fellow citizens of the country, and much more fellow followers of Jesus Christ, we need to welcome everyone into the kingdom of God in God's family. Forest. Let us be not just a non-neutral, non-racist. We have to be anti-racist. And another African-American lady said this, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be a free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is a commitment to fight the racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. It's the only way forward. I like that statement. We have uh, this ethnocentric city. We have this pride in our own community, in our whatever collective identity. And uh, but we heard from Christ. Anyone is in Christ is a new creation. There is no Jew or Greek, free or slave, man or woman. Anyone who is in Christ. We are new creation. We are one with God and one with each other. So there is a no other race but human race. Brothers and sisters, there is a no other race. We all belong to human race. And much more, we are new human race, recreated in Christ Jesus. And that's what we stand for. So let's really take the racism seriously, sensitively, and then let us really fight our own our, let's do our part. Sometimes point it out if I do any kind of a racistic kind of a, you know, ignorance stuff. I, I, I do, I do. But let us take this seriously. Because with the racism, we cannot proclaim the message of the gospel of good news that we are new creation in Christ. Amen? Let us pray.